0: This is
1: always a very special occasion, uh, and I'd like, just as a prelude, to begin by acknowledging a birthday that happened over the course of the summer. Carl Schmidt is now 96 years old. He was born in 1924, 96, 92 years old, Ah, 96, 1922, 96 years old. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Says,
1: no, Alan, we hand this over to you now so that uh, Alan is the mastermind of all of this. Uh, he is always manages to pull it off year by year. One time he even managed to uh, explain how the actors from the London stage are financed. <laughs> <laughs> if I did, I'd forgotten how. Uh, we we do it... Uh, with some um bubble gum and rubber bands and things <laughs> like that uh yeah um i want first of all to correct the rubric on the uh, announcement for today's event what you see there is not what you're getting um and the reason for that is that uh it was a description that uh, was turned into british studies by david cornhaber who was going to do the talk today and then uh family circumstances have prevented him from being here. And so we fall back on the old standby Shakespeare panel <laughs> arrangement, uh, which people seem to like well enough. Uh, or at least uh, they'll accept it as an as a ersatz uh, version of what you were promised. Um, I will say briefly about Actors from London Stage, for those of you who may not be familiar with them. It's a program that's been going on uh, since the mid-1970s. Um, It was started uh, by a professor of English uh, uh, from California, Santa Barbara, I believe he was, uh, wanting to seize back Shakespeare from the academics who had hijacked him, in his view, uh, who had essentially turned Shakespeare's plays into works of fiction, works to be read in class, to be analyzed, to be uh, discussed as if and parsed as if it were uh, fictional prose Uh, He insisted that Shakespeare wrote scripts uh, for actors, uh, for the theater, and that they should be understood that way. So he started taking his own students to England to see plays uh, in London and in Stratford. And then he started badgering actors to come meet with his students and talk about their experiences in translating the work from the page to the stage. And he found some resistance. Actors felt that they were uneducated, quite a number of them, felt they were uneducated, ill-equipped to talk, except with Shakespeare's script, from Shakespeare's script. Uh, And he he finally cornered Patrick Stewart, whom you may have heard of subsequently in other contexts. And Patrick told him, "Uh, no way, I don't do that sort of thing. I wouldn't have anything to say. And Swander, the professor from California, uh, would not let go, badgered him enough that he finally agreed to come around the next morning I just answer a few questions, uh, he was told. And as Patrick Stewart subsequently put it, uh, after an hour and a half, he discovered that he hadn't even begun to say all the things he discovered that he knew uh, and wanted to respond to the students with. So he became the British end of the operation. He was the founding uh, British director of the program. Uh, Swander decided he wanted to share the experience and to bring the actors to America, to American campuses. And so that's the way it evolved. Uh, there are headquarters in London. There are headquarters, the American headquarters uh, uh, are now at Notre Dame. Uh, the actors are all from British uh, companies. They, are, they audition and are cast in London. And then in uh, the summer and over the Christmas break, they rehearse. There are two seasons two different troops, two different sets of plays. They take them to American campuses for a week's residency, uh, seven or eight in the fall, seven or eight in the spring, a different play each semester, okay? So I've been bringing them here uh, to UT since 1999, so this, I guess is uh, our 20th year of doing this. Um, the company consists of five actors, Uh, It started out with five and it stayed at five. Why five? Because you can get five in a car. (laughs) That was the reason. It was a cheap way of doing it. And almost no props, minimum props. They they have to get all their props into a single trunk. Okay, and they have no director. So in that regard, it's like a Shakespearean production, from Shakespeare's day. They direct each other. It's the five of them alone in a room in South London, uh, locked away for a month or so, Then they take it on the road, they bring it over to Notre Dame, they spend a couple of weeks there, continuing to rehearse, get it up on its feet, and they start performing. They started performing this week. We will have them here next week, and the schedule of the performances are on that handout that I passed around. So that's the background on AFTLS. um, And if there are any questions about them later, I'd be happy to to try to answer them. Um, I'm going to do a, a brief introduction about Hamlet, the play, before we, uh, get into the the nitty-gritty of what we're doing together here. Uh, James Lowland and Eric Mallon and, and I uh, I want to say a couple of things about about the play and then move into something uh, specific uh, Hamlet is the Mona Lisa of literature That's not an original notion with me. That was TS Eliot writing uh, an essay called Hamlet and his problems back in the 1920s Why Mona Lisa? It's an, an enigmatic mystery play not in the sense of who done it, we know that pretty early on, but why and how and to what purpose. It is not only filled with questions, riddles, and enigmas, but it is more in the interrogative mood and perhaps more unsettling than any other Shakespeare play. John Dover Wilson, in the 1930s, great Shakespeare critic, wrote a book called What Happens in Hamlet. No other play has or needs such a book. It is unique to Hamlet. There are seven questions asked in the first 20 lines of the play, almost none of which are answered, or at least not answered directly and clearly. The word question itself, or variations on it like question a appear, bull, appears twice as many times in this play as in the next most play, which is uh, all's well that ends well. 17 times, it appears. From the questioning of the ghost that comes in questionable shape, to Hamlet's uncertainty about the nature of human existence, to be or not to be, that is the question. And Horatio's final hopeless determination to answer this bloody question, by telling Hamlet's story aright, as if anybody could in the brief time he's allotted. When you look back on the experience of Hamlet's uh, adventures that we've just experienced. Hamlet objects to those who would pluck out the heart of my mystery, but the play challenges its characters and us to try to do just that and then frustrates all our efforts. So that I will say in advance, and I hope this doesn't undermine what my colleagues are going to say, anything that they or I say about this play should be viewed skeptically. with a question mark hanging over it, Um, and challenged. (laughs) You'll get your own moments there. (laughs) Uh, In his essay, uh, Eliot went on to call Hamlet, extraordinarily in my view, an artistic failure. He argues, reasonably enough, that Hamlet derives from the tradition of revenge tragedies in which someone great or good has been murdered. The protagonist seeks revenge, is thwarted by the king's guard, feigns madness so that the guard is relaxed, and finally attains his revenge but dies in the process. And that's a fair summary of the kind of revenge tragedy that Shakespeare would have inherited. As Eliot notes, Hamlet contains all of these elements. But, he adds, they do not cohere fit together, make sense. For example, in Shakespeare's play, the king is unsuspicious after he's killed his predecessor. And his guard is down until Hamlet's harsh treatment of Othelia and his wild behavior causes Claudius to feel threatened and to raise his guard against Hamlet. And Hamlet, who has sworn to revenge his father's death and seems often on the verge of killing Claudius, uh, especially in the prayer scene, um, avoids doing so when the opportunity presents itself. Hamlet is far more than a failed revenge tragedy, far more complex, problematic, interesting, and popular than its source plays. In fact, it's probably the most popular play of Shakespeare's uh, that's been performed on the stage over the last 400 years. The Midsummer Night's Dream is catching up quickly. Unlike revenge tragedy, conventional revenge tragedies, in which the nature and embodiment of good and evil are clearly defined, Hamlet is, I submit, about incertitude, doubt, ambiguity, and equivocation. Okay, so they're at the very heart of what the play is and does. Now I'm, I'm going to focus uh, my attention for just a moment on one speech. This is a speech uh, towards the end of Act One, Scene Five. Hamlet has confronted the ghost um, who comes in questionable shape. And he has to decide from this moment going forward what to make of the ghost. Is it honest? Is it what it seems to be? Uh, Is it uh, some sort of demonic creature appearing in the guise of his father, or what? And he has what I take to be a kind of instinctual, um, passionate, intense response to the ghost, to the moment, to himself in this experience. And here's what it sounds like.
2: Oh, you host of heaven earth what else And shall I couple hell oh fie hold hold my heart and you my sinews grown on instant old but bear me swiftly up remember thee I thou poor ghost whilst memory holds a seat in this distracted globe remember thee yea from the table of my memory I'll wipe away all trivial, fond records, all saws of books, all forms, all pressures past that youth and observation copied there. And by commandment, all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain, unmixed with baser matter. Yes, by heaven! Oh, most pernicious woman. Oh, villain. Villain, smiling. damned villain. I- my tables. Mean it is. I set it down, that one may smile and smile and be a villain. At least I'm sure it may be so in Denmark. So, Uncle, there you are. Now, to my word. It is a due. A due. Remember me. I have sworn. To.
1: Thank you, Austin. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful speech. It's powerful speech, and what it does for me, especially, is to represent a dilemma. I think what most people tend to hear, at least initially, in this speech, is the business about memory and remember, and to read that as impelling action going forward toward revenge. For me, the speech is more about something else. It's more about looking back. Hamlet talks about wiping away from his memory all trivial fond records, all sorts of books, all forms, all pressures past. Everything Hamlet has known and been up until now, he must sacrifice if he is to give himself over to becoming the instrument of another another person's or spirit's purpose. And I think he finds that extremely hard, as would any of us. Um, And that, this is, uh, as as I suggested is, is, recurs, it seems to me, in the uh, couplet he speaks towards the end uh, end of the scene. When, unlike Shakespeare's other tragic protagonists, uh, Othello, Lear, Macbeth, Hamlet says, the time is out of joint, O cursed spite, that ever I was born to set it right. So he inherits his tragic burden, unlike the other tragic protagonists who are essentially responsible for creating them. He inherits his, and that's an enormously crushing onus that is placed upon him, and how, does he, how, do you, how do you begin to carry that and cope with it and enact it? You have to break with everything that's come before, it seems to me. And he's, he knows that, he sort of kind of accepts it, but he also fights against it. And that's the conflict that, it seems to me, emerges during the course of the play and that we see repeated over and over again in various ways. The, fir- the very first deed that Hamlet performs, the very first act he commits after the battleman scene, is, and we don't see it, we hear about it, he goes to Ophelia with a kind of hail and farewell because what he must do, is, first of all, is to break off from the one he loves most intensely. He cannot bring her along on this terrible journey that he has had imposed upon him. Uh, and, and I think it begins to destroy him. From within, as that goes forward. So.
3: Thank you, Alan. That was great. And, and actually, it was, a, it was a great introduction for whatever I wanted to say. Um, I wanted to start out with an anecdote that I just remembered, which was my, um, my, ex- my, my first sort of a scholarly experience with Hamlet. Uh, it was one of my dissertation chapters, and I was performing. Performing. I was writing my dissertation on a very old computer back when computers had just started to become computers. And um, <clears throat> it, was a, it was a step above a typewriter, but, but not much. And uh, I had finished a very long chapter on Hamlet. And I hit save. And the disk drive started spinning. There was a disk drive. And it was spinning. And it was spinning. After about five minutes, I realized I was in trouble. It kept spinning. It wasn't going to save what I had written about Hamlet. After 20 minutes, all of a sudden, every character that I had written had converted to a question mark. I'm not kidding.
0: <laughs>
3: Proof positive. I'm not, I'm not kidding. My entire chapter had been wiped out, replaced by question marks. And that's what you submitted. <laughs> Man, yeah.
4: I figured that would be that would be
3: sufficient scholarly I'd have reading taken, of the play. I'd have taken. it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Speaking of uh, speaking of question marks, I'm uh, supposed to talk today about um, uh, to be or not to be, and uh, I I do want to set the speech in context, which a lot of people forget to do. Part of the reason they forget to do it is it seems so easily extractable from the play. Uh, it seems like like such a great set piece, and uh, this sort of goes along with a. A theory that I have about about Shakespeare, which is that he actually wrote a bunch of speeches and he just put them in his drawer and he sort of pulled them out occasionally when he needed them, and and, and to be or not to be didn't quite fit, but he didn't let that bother him. So, um, so, so I wanted to I wanted to to, to talk about that, but uh, also also suggest that it is at the same time um, really crucial to the play in certain symbolic ways. Um, uh, I believe it was an, Correct me, is it, was it Olivier who said that Hamlet was about a, a man who could not make up his mind? Yes, yeah. yes, um, the opening of his film. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the, the great literary critic, Stephen Booth, said that uh, Hamlet was actually about an audience that couldn't make up its mind, <laughs> which I think is pretty clever. Um, I, I want to steal those, those comments and say, essentially, that um, I think that, that, at its core, Hamlet is actually about a speech that can make up its mind. And the speech is to be or not to be. And that's, that's the soliloquy. Um, to set it up, though, I think, uh, I think we need to, to put it in context. And to, to properly understand the context, I guess you've set up the, the first part of the context. Now, and um, I would start with uh, Polonius in Act 2, Scene 1. And we may not remember this, but Polonius begins that, that act by um, giving instructions to his servant, Rinaldo, to, to spy on his son, Laertes. And not only to spy on him, but to sort of seed rumors about him. Um, so, so much so that, that, that Ronaldo's kind of shocked. And he <laughs> says, no, no, that would dishonor him. And Polemia says, no, 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 it'll be fine. You know, you, you, know, you, can, you can say that he's been out whoring, it's, it's all right. Um, he, said, he says the, the reason he's doing this, um, and this is a fairly famous line, he says, uh, by indirections we will find directions out. So he proceeds indirectly in order to, to, to find a way forward. Um, one of the remarkable things that we realized in that moment is how much Polonius is actually like Hamlet. We tend to think of them as, as furious opposites, but they're really pretty similar that way. They're both sneaky and, and, and indirect, and that's kind of, um, it's kind of uh, shocking in a way. So uh, so I wanted to begin the idea of context with Polonius's surveillance of his son. Because what happens in, in the Hamlet that we read, the to be or not to be a soliloquy that we know, is that um, m- most of us understand it as a soliloquy, uh, plain and simple. Um, However, there's, a, there's another version of Hamlet that you may or may not know about, which is the so-called bad quarto, the first quarto version, which is another version that came out in Shakespeare's lifetime. Um, scholarly opinion on it, it seems mixed, actually. Uh, some people think that it's not authorial. It's not by Shakespeare. It was a reconstruction by an actor. I'm not so sure that's true. But, um, but one thing that's shocking about the speech, and maybe this is the reason that scholars have thought this, is that the, the, the speech to be or not to be in the first quarto actually makes sense. This is probably how you know it's not Shakespeare. Um, it, it, it actually makes sense. And part of the reason it makes sense is, is that it is in a different context. Um, it comes up at a different point in the play than the famous to be or not to be soliloquy. And, and I actually um, wanted, to, uh, wanted to rehearse where it, where it appears. Uh, At the point of of the early to be or not to be soliloquy, in the so-called bad quarto, um, the following things have happened. Hamlet's father has died. He's come back. The ghost has appeared. Um, Hamlet is is distraught. He has, uh, and we we will certainly differ on this interpretation, he has uh, either presented himself to Ophelia as sincerely miserable or set up a performance for Ophelia for various reasons, um, he uh, again. This is in the this is in the the first Cordo version. Um, he uh, let's see. So she has told her father that that Hamlet has come. He's been acting crazy, um, but here the following things have not happened. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have not been sent to Hamlet. The players have not yet showed up. Um, and he gives this he gives this speech. I don't know if if, uh, if we, we have a copy available. Um, I actually don't have a copy. Um, if You could thank you. Um, I, I made a few copies of uh, of the, the the version in the in the in the first quarto. And when you read this with the the version that we all know in mind, we'll, see. he's got it. If, if, you if, if you want him, if you want, you know have, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That is fantastic. Um, Thank you so much. Um, yeah, that would, be, that would be great. This is actually the most fun lecture I've ever <laughs> given. It's a participatory lecture. That's great. Um, so this is, uh, this, is, this is the version in, in, in the first quarto. And I think you'll notice a few differences from, uh, from the version that most of us know. Yeah, it
2: connects the dots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank you. To be or not to be. Aye, there's the point. To die, to sleep. Is that all? I all no, to sleep, to dream. Ay, Mary, there it goes. For in that dream of death, when we awake and born before an everlasting judge from whence no passenger ever returned, the undiscovered country at whose sight the happy smile and the accursed damned. But for this, the joyful hope of this, who'd bear the scorns and flattery of the world? scorned by the right rich, the rich cursed of the poor, the widow being oppressed, the orphan wronged, the taste of hunger, or a tyrant's reign, and thousand more calamities besides, to grunt and sweat under this weary life, when that he may his full quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would this endure for a hope of something after death, which puzzles the brain and doth confound the sense? Which makes us rather bear those evils we have than fly to others that we know not of. I that, oh, this conscience makes cowards of us all. Lady, in my orisons be all my sins remembered. Lovely. Thank you. That's
3: great. That was, um, I think, really beautifully and smoothly delivered, which is exactly the opposite of the way I would read it,
2: <laughs> which is not a critique at all. Try to do it some justice. I think you.
3: that, no, 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 no I, I, I can't. That was, that was much better than I could possibly read it. But what I, would, what I would actually say about this speech is that it comes early enough in the play that it seems more or less continuous with his earlier visit to Ophelia, which is to say, in some ways, the way this speech makes sense is that it's not supposed to make sense. It's supposed to be a bit daffy. Um, and so it has sentence fragments in it. He breaks off. He doesn't seem to realize that Ophelia is there. Well, of course, that's true of both speeches. Um, and, and unlike the to be or not to be speech that, that, we, that we know, he actually says the reason that he doesn't kill himself um, is for the hope of something after death, not for the fear of what may happen after death. Um, so this is at once a so much more cheerful Hamlet, but also a Hamlet that sounds a bit um, scattered or or unsure of of himself. As opposed to um, the to be or not to be speech that, that we all know, in which Hamlet sounds famously philosophical and plausibly suicidal.
0: To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die to sleep no more and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die to sleep to sleep perchance to dream i there's the rub for in that sleep of death when we have shuffled off this mortal coil what dreams may come must give us pause There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of disprized love, the laws delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life that the dread of something after death. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will, makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought. And enterprises of great pith and moment, with disregard their currents turn awry. And lose the name of action. It's off you know. The fair Ophelia, nymph in
3: thy orisons, be all my sins remembered. Uh, Great, thank you. Thank you so much. So um, that speech has been uh, ably and beautifully uh, explicated by my colleague, Douglas Brewster. Doug, are you here? Maybe he's not here. Um, In this book, which is called To Be or Not to Be. Um, an app title, and uh, and I won't uh, rehearse his arguments here here at all, except to say uh, something something that that he concludes with, which is essentially that um, in his reading, the to be or not to be speech as we know it is a, essentially a distillation of the, the play that 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 numerous themes of questioning of of of, of uh, worries about the afterlife, et cetera, et cetera, are are contained in that speech. Um, Th- that, that, in a way, goes against what I'm going to say about the speech, uh, mostly because if we contextualize it, a very different kind of speech emerges. Um, that is to say, when uh, Daniel's speech occurs, um, the following things have happened, which I telegraphed earlier, the following things have happened. Uh, Hamlet's uh, uh, relationship with Ophelia has disintegrated, as with the, the first court of speech. However, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have come to court, and they have been sent to Hamlet by the king and queen to spy on him. They have come to Hamlet, and he's instantly suspicious of them, and rightfully so, and uh, sniffs out that they've been been sent to spy on him. He's not really happy about that. But it's really crucial to understand that he knows he's under surveillance. That's absolutely important for the speech, as we have it. the next thing that happened, which is really important, is uh, they've been bantering with him, and they say, well, you know, if you're upset, um, now I can't imagine what Lenten entertainment the players will have from you. And he says, players, what players? And they say, oh, the players are on their way. And Hamlet, then there's a very, very famous passage in the play um, that, in, in, in which Hamlet enters, uh, sorry, entertains uh, the players. He meets them, they're his old friends. And, uh, He's struck with a very famous idea, which is what?
0: He plays the thing. We're <laughs> the
3: Thank you. Yes, exactly right. Yes, he has decided. Um, this is near the end of Act 2, Scene 2. Um, hey, it's not just great to see the players, but they, I, they can serve my purposes. How cool. And in fact, not only am I being spied on, but maybe I can spy myself. So what he's decided to do is use the players to spy on, on, on Claudius. And he's very excited about this. And this is his plan. At which point, unintelligibly, he then gives the to be or not to be speech. Why? Why? (laughs) Is he suicidal? Probably not. Probably not at this point. Probably not even close. He should be excited. He should be pleased. Um, So, so here, this is a, a very strange sort of mystery about, about, the, about the speech. A, a, an extremely famous Shakespearean named A.C. Bradley seemed to actually think this was a strength. That is to say that Hamlet sort of entertains suicide a second time um, even, after, uh, even after the players have come. And I'm not quite sure why this is a strength. I actually think it's incoherent. Um, he seems to be on a linear path to test Claudius to see what's, what's going to happen. Um, and, and so he gives the speech, which is characterized in a way that no other soliloquy that Hamlet gives is characterized or can be characterized, which is to say, we will search in vain in this particular soliloquy for any personal detail about Hamlet's life. Every other soliloquy makes reference to his personal situation, to the death of his father, to uh, the, the possibly the loss of love in his life, to, uh, particularly to, to King Claudius, this has nothing. This, has, this is completely abstract, random, impersonal. Um, to see this speech as deeply felt, I believe, is a mistake. Or, or I should say, to spe- see this speech as deeply felt in the moment is a mistake. It may have been deeply felt when Hamlet wrote it and put it in a drawer 20 years ago.. No. Um, but, but at this point, at this point, it makes no sense to have Hamlet give this particular speech now, unless we make it make sense. So that's what I'm going to do, or suggest. Um, OK, so, uh, so once again, knows he's being surveilled, wants to surveil the king. Um, he's got this exciting new idea. Um, he doesn't really have any thoughts of suicide. Um, the speech is essentially a sham. It's essentially fraudulent. Not only that, but let us not forget that this is not fundamentally a soliloquy. There are many people on stage. Uh, the king is behind the curtain. Polonius is behind the curtain. Ophelia is on stage. He may pretend just to see her at the end of the speech, but there she is. Oh, soft you now, the fair Ophelia. Hey, how are you? <laughs> um, it's surprising. Now, this can be staged so that he, I assume, that he doesn't see her or that she comes on at the end of the speech and his back is turned. Right There are all, all kinds of ways to arrange it so that Hamlet doesn't know Ophelia is there, but Hamlet knows Ophelia is there. I would, I would guess. So I guess I want us to think about how, how different this speech is if Hamlet is giving it to an audience and knows he's giving it to an audience. Like what, what, what the speech means under those circumstances. And there aren't that many plausible answers, but, but one interesting thing does, does sort of emerge. Um, Again, this this depends on my much different reading from Alan's reading of, of Hamlet going to Ophelia and uh, essentially essentially saying goodbye to her, saying farewell to her. Um, my guess is he he does so in a in a in a um, I- ironically, um, almost comically over the top way, in in which in which his miming is, is easily summarized by Ophelia to the king and queen. He knows she's going to tell. And, and he, you know, he makes gestures and he sighs heavily and, and runs away, so that, so that um, Ophelia will say, oh my gosh, Hamlet, poor Hamlet. And, and, and the immediate reading is, oh, he must be mad for your love. Right. So that, that, seems, that seems plausible. So, so Hamlet right now is buying time, that is to say, before The players show up. When the players show up, he has a plan. But until that point, he was just buying time. He didn't quite know what to do. Um, The players show up, he has a plan. His plans have to change. He needs, instead instead of people to be suspicious of him, he needs to allay suspicions. So he gives this speech to explain, this speech that we know it, this speech as we have it, the to be or not to be soliloquy. Not essentially to say, I'm going to kill myself. But as he says at the end of the speech, to lose the name of action, to to promise Claudius he's not going to do anything. It's a promissory note for passivity. And what's great about Hamlet the play and Hamlet the person, is that whenever Hamlet makes a plan, he then messes it up. He cannot help himself. This is one of the keynotes of his character. So that after Hamlet gives the speech, and he thinks, oh, this is great, nicely formed, got, the, got the, the fake philosophy down, sound really passive, not going to do anything, to lose the name of action, soft euphilia, nymph in thy arsons be all my sins remembered. She says, here are some of your love letters. And he goes, what? <laughs> what? And he flips out at her. He cannot control himself. Um, he, he loses the plan that he had so carefully formulated. After which point, Claudius and Polonius steps out, and Claudius turns to Polonius and says, love? and didn't sound much like love. And he said, you know, and, and, and although his speech lacks form a little, it wasn't much like madness either. So Hamlet really does a very, very bad job of carrying through with the plans that he does seem to have. Um, but at this moment, at this central moment in the play, the to be or not to be soliloquy, I think we need to see it as a completely insincere setup job that he then cannot sustain. Um, the one other great example of Hamlet having a, having a moment that he simply, having a plan that he simply cannot sustain, comes in the famous play within the play scene, but I'll yield my time now to James. Um. All right.
4: Uh, Thank you, uh, Ellen and Eric. Um, I am here sort of batting cleanup. And uh, uh, one of my goals was to make sure that you got something like what you were promised in the uh, the advertisement, um, uh, which uh, I think said it was going to be about to be or not to be through the ages. Um, And uh, Eric uh, has uh, given us a lot about to be or not to be. Um, and so I'll try to say a little about Hamlet through the ages, um, but uh, I'm sure we'll uh, want to re- return to all of our thoughts about the, um, uh, the play and some of your thoughts uh, afterwards. Um, uh, Hamlet has always been uh, one of Shakespeare's most popular plays, perhaps his, his most popular, as Alan said. Um, both. Uh, on the stage and in the study. Um, it was published uh, several times in uh, Shakespeare's Lifetime. That's part of the problem uh, because we have these different competing texts, uh, as Eric mentioned, that make, uh, uh, present certain challenges of interpretation. Um, but it also seems to have always been very popular uh, in performance um, and uh, with good reason. It is a play that uh, that has everything, right? It's got uh, all kinds of, Uh, narrative devices and character types and uh, plot elements that uh, we find really compelling. Uh, It's got a a ghost story and a murder mystery, Uh, it has love interest, it's got a family drama, Uh, it has uh, these uh, larger political dimensions, and uh, it also has this uh, very uh, compelling central character uh, that people have always enjoyed trying to uh, get the measure of. And certainly the actors have always enjoyed playing. Um, uh, yeah, if you're a young actor, um, a uh, word of advice, uh, if you hear that somebody's having uh, auditions for a production of Hamlet, um, don't go along thinking that you might get cast as Hamlet, because uh, people tend to do this play because actors want to play the part, so uh, probably that part has already been cast. I've uh, I've been in Hamlet five times, I think, and I've never never played Hamlet. Uh, uh, I have played The Ghost, The King, Laertes, Fortinbras, and Ronaldo. Um, uh, uh, so, um I've only got Polonius left, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, um, so it's uh, it's a play that's always been successful. It uh, was done uh, by Shakespeare's company in the Globe Theater. Um, we know, that we think we know Richard Burbage, his leading actor, uh, who also played, his other tragic protagonist played the role of Hamlet. Um, uh, Ophelia and Gertrude would have been played by male actors. Um, and the play would have been done Uh, in broad daylight uh, on a bare stage uh, in the middle of the afternoon. So um, it's a play that in modern performances tends to be quite atmospheric um, with a lot of night scenes and and creepy castle settings and so forth, but uh, would have been done very simply and starkly uh, in Shakespeare's theater. Um, We know that it was done also uh, at the two universities of Oxford and Cambridge. It was done uh, at the court before King James I, Um, though after uh, Shakespeare's death. Um, And uh, it was also performed um, abroad in Germany. Um, Seems to have been one of the first Shakespeare plays performed outside of England. Um, And it was even performed uh, in a ship uh, called the Dragon uh, off the coast of Sierra Leone in uh, Africa in 1607. Um, Apparently the, the, the captain decided that it was Uh, a a good entertainment for the crew. He said, uh, he let uh, the tragedy of Hamlet be performed to keep my people from idleness and unlawful games or sleep, Uh, (coughs) which uh, I've always enjoyed. Um, Hamlet doesn't always uh, succeed in that goal. But uh, uh, anyway, I I think one of the reasons it's continued to be so popular is that it uh, creates these kinds of questions of interpretation that we've been talking about. Uh, um, Can the ghost be trusted? Why does Hamlet delay if he does? Um, uh, How guilty or complicit is Gertrude in the murder? Um, uh, Are Hamlet and Ophelia lovers? Why is Claudius on the throne instead of Hamlet? All of these kinds of questions are are a part of the play. Um, And especially um, relating to what we've been saying about um, Uh, Hamlet's behavior to Ophelia and so forth. Is Hamlet really mad? Um, Oscar Wilde famously jokingly proposed an essay uh, entitled, Are the Commentators on Hamlet Really Mad or Only Pretending to Be? Um, Which I think uh, uh, gives a sense of, you know, just how much ink has been spilled uh, over those kinds of questions. Each uh, production has to uh, explore the play in its own terms. And each age, I think, uh, remakes Hamlet uh, in its own image. And it's really interesting to look at the uh, performance history of the play, um, uh, to read about uh, the famous Hamlets, uh, to uh, see uh, images of those productions and, and, and see how the, the play has been uh, continually transformed. And uh, that's, uh, I think, the thing that David Kornhaber was going to talk about and hopefully maybe sometime we'll give that same uh, talk to, to British studies. Um, just to give some examples, uh, the, the great Hamlet of the, uh, the 18th century was, uh, in London was John Philip Kemble. Uh, who was very much a Hamlet for the age of reason, a uh, a neoclassical Hamlet. If you see images of him, he looks like a a Greek statue. Um, uh, He carried himself very nobly. He was never um, uh, especially passionate, always very thoughtful and reflective um, uh, in his delivery of the soliloquies and so forth. Uh, Whereas the great Hamlet of the 19th century, uh, Edmund Keane, was uh, a very passionate romantic Hamlet, right? He was a, uh, a very kind of fiercely physical, energetic presence in the role. He had uh, a blazing dark eyes and uh, a kind of uh, intense, wiry presence. And he was a, a, a true romantic in that he uh, he sort of burned himself out at an early age through you know dissipation and drink, and this kind of led to his uh, uh, sort of cemented his, his legend. Uh, one of the very famous comments about Edmund Keane's acting, uh, I think in the role of Hamlet, um, I believe it was Coleridge said that to, to see Keane act is like reading Shakespeare by flashes of lightning. And uh, I think that's a great kind of romantic uh, characterization of his performance. Um, in the 20th century, uh, you move on to a, a kind of psychological uh, Hamlet, uh, especially with uh, the reading of uh, Sigmund Freud, developed by uh, Ernest Jones, that Hamlet is uh, in the grip of, a, of an Oedipus uh, complex and that his, his delay and his neuroses all are connected to uh, the fact that you know he is, his uncle has done the thing that he himself desired to do, which is kill his father and marry his mother. Um, and so you get uh, a lot of sort of psychological Oedipal Hamlets uh, in the, the first half of the 20th century, including most famously uh, Laurence Olivier, uh, who played the role in the, in the 30s on stage and in the uh, um, 1948 uh, film, where he's, uh, he's definitely a little long in the tooth uh, for the part, but it, it kind of uh, maybe sort of builds up the, uh, the sense of the... The, the Hamlet-Gertrude family romance in that he is, I think, exactly the same age as his mother uh, in that film. And their scenes are very passionate, uh, particularly the famous, uh, the scene that used to be called the closet scene, uh, where Hamlet and Gertrude uh, have a, a kind of intense uh, encounter, uh, which Olivier set in, in uh, Gertrude's bedroom. And um, in, in many subsequent productions, uh, the bed is a, is a prominent uh, prop in that scene. Um, so that kind of gets us into the uh, the 20th century. In the later 20th century, you tended to get uh, a lot of kind of dropout student hamlets um, uh, who were, you know, kind of fighting against uh, authority and their, you know, oppressive older generation. Um, Martin Sheen played uh, such a hamlet for Joseph Papp in New York um, in the late 60s. And then, uh, Uh, David Warner uh, for Peter Hall uh, at the Royal Shakespeare Company did a famous kind of anti-establishment, you know, sort of teen rebel student uh, Hamlet. Um, So that's, you know, kind of a a few instances of the way this play has been kind of remade um, over time. Um, In recent years, um, recent decades, there's been, I think, a a little more interest in that uh, kind of geopolitical dimension of the play, um, which used regularly to be cut. Uh, right, that the play begins and ends with uh, a, a conflict between uh, Denmark and Norway, and uh, with the figure of Fortinbras, uh, who is a um, also an avenging son like Hamlet. His father was killed in single combat by Hamlet's father, and he's. Um, kind of out for revenge now. Um, And I think in in a lot of recent productions, he's become a sort of uh, powerful and kind of disturbing uh, figure in that he takes over the kingdom at the end. There was a very famous production uh, directed by Ingmar Bergman uh, in Stockholm and then it played in New York also where the the play ended with uh, Fortinbras and his troops coming in in kind of modern... I mean, it was, uh, the, the, the production was all in sort of different periods, but um, uh, they, they rappelled in from the flies and kind of crashed in from the sides in kind of black riot gear, military uh, garb with helmets and machine guns and with uh, modern Danish rock music blaring, and it was this kind of assault on uh, the world of the play from this kind of you know threatening uh, invader. And I think the, that that image has, has come up a lot of times um, in modern performances. Um, but yeah, Fortinbras uh, used to always be cut from the play. It tended just to end with Hamlet you know, saying the rest is silence and Horatio saying Good night, sweet prince and flights of angels sing me to thy rest and you didn't have this kind of uh, reassertion of the kind of international scene um, and the, the, one of the consequences of this is that one of uh, the great soliloquies of Hamlet was almost never performed. And um, so we're going to have one more tiny bit of performance, um, but it, it is this um, uh, very interesting speech from Act Four, um, which occurs only in the second quarto of Hamlet, it's not in the other two uh, published, uh, early published versions of the play. Um, and it's a, a speech in which Hamlet um, has just, he's, been, he's on his way to be uh, sent to England and he happens to have a kind of close encounter with Fortinbras who's marching uh, through uh, Denmark with his troops um, going to invade Poland since he can't invade Denmark at the moment. And um, uh, Hamlet learns from Fortinbras' captain that there's going to be this, um, this huge battle over this very inconsequential patch of ground, uh, which is not tomb enough or continent to hide the slain, right, it's um, uh, thousands of people are gonna die over this unimportant uh, piece of land. And uh, Hamlet in some strange way is inspired by this um, and uh, has the, the following reaction.
2: How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. What is a man if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed? A beast no more. Sure, he that made us with such large discourse looking before and after gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fuss in us unused. Now, whether it be Bestial oblivion, or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the vent, a thought which, quartered, hath but one part wisdom, and ever three parts coward. I do not know. Why yet I live to say this thing's to do, since so I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. Examples gross as earth exhort me. Witness this army of such mass and charge led by a delicate and tender prince, whose spirit with divine ambitions puffed makes mouths at the invisible event, exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death, and danger dare. Even for an eggshell, rightly to be great, is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at the stake. How stand I then? have a father killed, a mother stained, excitements of my reason and my blood, and let all sleep, while to my shame I see the imminent death of 20,000 men, who for a fantasy and trick of fame go to their graves like beds, fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try the cause which is not tomb enough and continent to hide the slain. Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth.
4: Okay, so that, that's the speech that, that no one wants in Hamlet or that, that somehow doesn't uh, make it into many productions, but that you know people have, have found interesting of late. Um, and it certainly seems that Hamlet is able to see the, the kind of futility and waste of war in this um, military adventure of Fortinbras's. But at the same time, he, he seems to tell himself, that's what I have to do to, to carry out my revenge. From this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. Um, and uh, we can you know, argue about exactly what uh, Hamlet's position is at that point, because as Alan uh, has, has pointed out, he doesn't turn around and go back and kill Claudius right then. He gets on the boat uh, and goes to England. But from this point of the play, he does start killing a lot of people. And uh, uh, the last movement of the play is famously kind of a bloodbath, which, you know, when, when, when pushed, you know, finally to take action, um, Hamlet takes some, some pretty... Uh, severe and uh, violent action. Um, and the, the German playwright, um, uh, great Marxist playwright Bertolt Brecht, uh, focused on this moment in his reading of Hamlet and in his the poem that he wrote about Hamlet, as, as, as kind of the moment of Hamlet's regression that, you know, Hamlet has been this philosophical character who has not been able to bring himself to take a violent revenge and something about this encounter uh, with Fortinbras um, spurs him onto that. Um, so, anyway, something to think about. I want us to be able to. Uh get on to your questions Um, and uh, just, uh, you know, I would encourage everybody to go see the AFTLS performance uh, next week and and look out for kind of how they handle some of these different uh, issues that uh, we've been bringing up because again, Hamlet uh, is an endlessly fascinating text that will repay uh, continued exploration of this kind.